Hi, it's Jill Schlesinger on this episode of the podcast. What's the one thing every organization needs to focus on? So we've got to learn to be really specific about the things we are drawn to. We would do if nobody paid us to do. If you're going to do one thing right on a team, one thing, figure that out for everybody on the team. You point your curiosity at bright sparks. That's the trick. Welcome to the Jill on Money podcast. We are presented by Marcus by Goldman Sachs. Have you ever been in one of those dreadful offsites where someone comes in and starts lecturing about team building and you kind of like, oh, I don't want to be here. I don't want to do this. Well, I've got a great guest for you. We've got Ashley Goodall. He is the Senior Vice President of Leadership and Team Intelligence at Cisco. And he's co-written a book that's called Nine Lies About Work, A Free-Thinking Leader's Guide to the Real World. And what I love about this book is it dispels so many myths that are running through organizations, large and small. So check it out. Here's our interview with Ashley Goodall. You're listening to Jill on Money with Jill Schlesinger. Ashley Goodall, welcome to the program. It's great to be here, Jill. We start with an extremely important question, and that is, what is your best career or money decision you've ever made? Let's make it a career decision because you've written this great book, Nine Lies About Work, or I should say you co-wrote the book because poor Marcus, whoever he is, he's on the other side. Who cares about him? But you co-wrote it with Marcus, Nine Lies About Work. What is the best career decision you've ever made it's actually a strategy go narrow go narrow now a lot of us are told to go broad right try and become good at lots and lots of different things and what i've learned through the course of my career is that if you go narrow and you get 17 questions deep on something then that broadens once you've become narrow then that broadens into all sorts of different walks of life would you mean like become a subject matter expert and then from there see where that leads you? Yeah, go deep on whatever fascinates you. Oh, go, go, follow your, follow your curiosity and keep following and keep following. And when you start doing that, by the way, the world will send you signals that hang on, what are you up to? It's not very interested. But once you come out through the tunnel, if you like, once you're really, really deep in something, then all of a sudden people start listening to what you have to say. I love that. So listen, you wrote this book, you walked into the studio, first thing I said is I usually hate these books and I really like this book a lot. And one of the things that you talk about is you sort of dispel this uh, myth about all this crap that's fed to everybody in corporate America and you hone in on teams. Why did you start with this concept as like your the key to understanding the success model for leadership and culture at companies. Yeah, I think we're generally a little bit careless about teams. We sort of, in in the corporate world or in the world outside big companies, sort of go, well, yeah, teams are sort of there and they're actually slightly annoying because they contain people who aren't us and that's sort of frustrating because we have to learn how these people are different and it would be easier if they were all like us. And then we sort of move on and go back to uh, big sort of organizational systems of goal setting and planning and uh, competency models and all of those things. But if you look at the evidence, you find out that the team experience you have at work, the experience of the people you work with every day is, for all intents and purposes, the experience of work. So we have to really, really pay attention to that. If, if we're curious about how to make work a better experience for all of us, a more uplifting experience, a more energizing, more productive 
then we've got to start with where does work happen and work happens on teams. And you actually have an interesting story about this group of workers in Poland and that there's this team, but then there's these three guys. And are we going to call them a team or are we going to call them like a subset of the team? What, yeah, it's a sort of little sub-team, isn't it? So talk a little bit about that experience and watching that team and what was notable about those three folks and the rest of the team. This is me sort of traveling around the world being curious about teams, by the way, which is one of the things I love to do. And uh, I was in Poland with a, with a group of people from Cisco's office there. And uh, we met in a conference room, 15 people on the team. First thing I had them do was draw a picture of their web of relationships. And the thing that came out looked nothing like a corporate org chart, by the way. It looked like a complete mess of spaghetti. So the first thing the 15 said to me is, this is our life. Life is messy. Organizational life is complex. We treat it as though it's simple and clean and tidy. It's not. It's a big mess. This is what we have to navigate. And then later on, I said, well, show me where you work. I want to see the place where this team comes together. And it was a big, long desk with dividers between everybody's seating area. And three people on the team grabbed me and they said, okay, over here, this is where we huddle. And I said, what on earth, what on earth do you mean? And it was just an unremarkable spot of industrial carpet, if you like. Mm-hmm. And they said, well, when, there's, when a problem comes up during the day, the three of us are sort of working together, but we can't really see one another because of the partition. So we jump up, have a quick huddle on the piece of industrial carpet, and that's where we solve the problem. And I said, oh, is there anything else you three do together? And they said, oh, yeah, we always have lunch together. But it's just these three, and is it? It's it's not that they are they're not the team captains. No, they're just three members of this fifteen of person this fifteen team. person team, and they huddle and they have a spot on the patio where they have lunch every day, and it's planned. I said, "Is that accidental?" And they said, "No, it's packed lunch, so you have to plan for it. You have to make the lunch and bring it in, right?" Which is, I was trying to understand how deeply built into their life at work these habits are. So you've got the huddling and the lunching. None of that shows up in the way that we talk about work. We don't understand the micro-relationships between people. Now then, Cisco's an awesome company. We have all sorts of great programs. We offer people development. We have great benefits. If you took away the patio or you took away the piece of industrial carpet that they're huddling on, you would materially change their experience. And if you took away one of the three people, their experience of work would be transformed how do they interact with the other 12 people? Are they seen as like, in other words, I could almost view that in, in one of two ways. This is so cool. These people are like getting together and they're making it happen. But then are the other people left out? Do they, the other 12 feel like, oh, look at those three off having lunch again? Or is that a particularly teenage girl kind of reaction? That's not what I saw. Okay. Uh, when they drew this big map, there were sort of sub teams within the teams And they were doing slightly different pieces of work within the team overall. So these were just three who happened to need to be responsive to certain issues as they emerged. And they had a ritual of response. And then I guess they had a ritual of spending time together outside of the sort of rhythm of work when they were lunching. But it seemed to me to be a beautiful example of if you go look at the real world, go look at the real world and just let it reveal itself to you. You see things that no one else seems to have paid much attention to, and those things seem to me to be really important. How do you use information like that and start to try to replicate what those team members are doing 
with tens of thousands of other employees. Well, what it means is that the scalability of anything that you do at a corporate scale rests on teams, firstly. So the question, if you want a better company, you're actually saying, how do I get more and more great teams? That's the same thought because you can only scale the experience of work by scaling the micro experiences of work, which means you've got to help teams thrive. So what we've done is we've understood what constitutes a great team and we equip team leaders with tools to help them improve their teams. So what you call eight precisely worded items which validly predict sustained team performance. I'm going to read them just because I have this is I thought find them quite interesting. One, I am really enthusiastic about the mission of my company, which is kind of a snore. And also, hello, many companies have no mission. So let's just start there. Problem. We should come back to that. I know. At work, I clearly understand what is expected of me. In my team, I am surrounded by people who share my values. Four, I have the chance to use my strengths. This is important, gang every day at work. Five, my teammates have my back. Six, I know I will be recognized for excellent work. Seven, I have confidence in my company's future. And eight, in my work, I am always challenged to grow. These seem to me really interesting. And you say that there are two broad groupings of these questions. And what are those? So the first thing to note about those is those are measuring somebody's experience of their team. That's what's going on there. And the experience on the team is what predicts all the outcomes that we care most about in the world of work, whether it's people staying on the team or the productivity of the team or innovation or many, many other things. The experience falls into two buckets. So the questions that you just read out, the even-numbered ones, which are about expectations, strengths, challenge to grow, recognition, those are all about, am I seen for who I am? Right, that's an individual. Does my team leader see me? Do my teammates see me? Not as a cog in a machine, but as a living, breathing human being. Mm -hmm. Do I know how my team is pulling on what's special in me? Mm -hmm. That's thing one, and we call that the best of me. The other group, the odd-numbered ones, which are about the one that you commented on, excitement about the mission, teammates have my back, shared sense of excellence, uh, confidence in the future, those are the sort of collective sense of being on a team. And so we call that the best of we. And so the secret source from all of the research, and this is not, by the way, we didn't just write these down. These are the questions that show up, that light up on the best teams and do not light up on mediocre teams. Mm -hmm. What we're all after is to be seen for who we are and to have that essence of us incorporated in something bigger so that we have a home defined for us by other people. We know the other people are different from us. We know that our different strengths and spikes are going to be well used and we feel supported by the people around us. Now then, that's a marvelous experience. Globally, about 16% of people in the world have an experience where they are strongly agree to all of that stuff. 16% is way more than I thought you'd get. No, it's 16%. All right, that's pretty good. Any geographic issues, in other words, found more in certain countries or not, or 16% across the board in global? It, it varies a little bit, but more or less that's, that's the number. It, it's been 16 17% for 20 years, oh, wow. by the way. And the numbers haven't really moved. Of course, the other interesting work number that hasn't really moved in the last 20 years is productivity growth. Mm -hmm. 
And why are we not productive? Maybe because that 16% is pretty small. Maybe because we have a whole bunch of technologies at work and approaches at work that are descendants of the industrial system of 100 years ago where we want to put people in boxes and tell them what to do and treat them like cogs in the machine. Mm -hmm. Maybe that's run out of gas now. You'd like to think. I mean, as long as it's recognized that it's run out of gas and not just sort of saying, why are you not being more productive? Well, and come back to the team in Poland. If I'd have gone into those three people and said, never mind the piece of carpet, never mind eating lunch together, never mind planning to spend time together, never mind the huddles, I'm going to give you cascaded goals and tell you what to do. I'm going to tell you what the culture of your team is. I'm going to give you the plan that you must adhere to. I'm going to measure you all against a set of competencies and tell you to go off and fill your gaps. I'm going to give you feedback against those competencies. I'm going to sort you into high potential and low potential. Firstly, it wouldn't help. But secondly, it wouldn't even see those human beings. Mm -hmm. None of this stuff sees the humans at the heart of it. But I think that so many of these corporate initiatives that come from on high, whether it is the mission or the goals, are such like baloney, really. So many of them, you know, you have some slogan, but it's not backed up by anything. That's, I think, the frustration of so many people in the workplace today, which is, oh, you know, they want to do this. They say they want this, but they don't do, they don't act in a way that they reflects that mission. So can we talk a little bit about this mission statement? And especially also, let's talk about the mission statement when you're working at a smaller company, which may not even have an identified mission statement. Yeah, so I think the mission statement is probably the least important thing in making work purposeful. Mm -hmm. And yes, there are, I think, leaders of organizations are very often well-meaning and careless. And a mission statement is a well-meaning thing. Goodness me, we should write down what we're all here for. It's a good thought. Yeah. But then if what you do is write it down, recite it to all the employees who are already rolling their eyes because you've come up with a slide and they need you to do a bit more than that, and that's the end of the conversation, then that will just breed, I think, cynicism. Because folks are smart in organizations. They look up the whole time. They know what you're actually doing doing as opposed to what you're saying people will follow your feet not your words so if you want to fill an organization with purpose what you do is actually design the activities of the organization Mm. to reflect the purpose Mm -hmm. Um, we have some examples in the book you think about leaders always telling stories or you think about the the marvelous steve jobs all hands meetings which everyone else in the world thought were product launches but in fact were really an all hands meeting where where Steve Jobs is saying, we've made something else and it's beautiful again. And we were here three months ago and there was another beautiful thing and we've made this beautiful thing and it all works and it's a beautiful enclosed ecosystem. You could disagree with that. You could say, well, that's not the sort of thing that technology should be. You could say Apple isn't making good business decisions by keeping its ecosystem closed. But you could never say, I don't understand what this company is for. That was purpose being Mm. cascaded. You look at the Chick-fil-A franchise agreement that where you're only allowed to have one store because they want to build community leaders and so they want people who are in the stores. That's designing an organization around its purpose. So purpose isn't a statement. It's not a slide. It's an architecture. 
It's a set of habits, rituals. It's designed so that if you walk into a company, you can't but fail to bump into some manifestation of here's what we're all here to do. So I uh, had an opportunity to do part of my book tour. I went to Salesforce, both here in New York City, and I also went to the Bay Area. And I came back from the New York experience, and, and I said to Mark, I totally want to work there. I mean, it is an intoxicating environment in so many ways for, for me from the outside. It was amazing. So I w- did the New York thing, and then I did the Bay Area thing. And I have just very rarely been in an organization where kind of top to bottom, everybody seemed quite pleased with where they are, what they were doing, and that the company kind of backed up what it was trying to do. So when we were doing an employee enrichment event, there are times I go into companies and they're like, oh, we can't buy the book. With Salesforce, they're like, oh, of course we're going to buy a book for everyone who wants to be here. Anyone who wants a book gets a book. Because we think that financial wellness is part of employee wellness, and we back that up, and we love this. Great. That is rare that I encounter that. I know you mentioned them in the book, and and I wonder what kind of impact that has in terms of just retention of employees. Yeah, and the answer is it depends. We have a different quality of information looking into a company from the outside than we do when we're living inside a company. And sometimes those two correspond, of course. Sometimes they don't. What always trumps the outside view, the Ohana floor, the buying books for everybody, what always trumps that is the experience on the local team. And that's not just me saying that. That's the data. If you look at my data from Cisco, if I take you from one of our the top half of teams in terms of engagement to the bottom half, your chance of walking out the door goes up by 45%. And you're still working at Cisco. You're still leaving Cisco, but you're leaving a bad team at Cisco as opposed to staying on a great team at Cisco. So if you control for all the company things, if you control for the good intent of leadership, the Ohana floor, the culture things that we tend to see more clearly from the outside looking in, but then you look at what determines people's actions to stay or go and their productivity and their creativity and all the things that companies desperately want their smart and precious people to deliver for them, the overwhelming driver of those things is the quality of the team experience. It's back to the three people in Poland. This is Jill on Money. We'll get back to the show in just a minute. Now, you know I am Jill Schlesinger because you're listening to the podcast, right? You may not know that I'm also a certified financial planner. My day job, I'm the CBS News business analyst, and yes, I am your host of this podcast. As we've been saying over the past few weeks, the podcast has a new sponsor, Marcus by Goldman Sachs. Marcus is part of a storied company that's been a leader in financial services for generations. And Marcus offers simple, secure access to FDIC-insured savings products. And that includes a high-yield online savings account that earns four times the national average. Here's a great way to stop complaining that you're earning so little in your other savings accounts. Marcus also offers certificates of deposit, including no-penalty CDs. So how about this? Get inspired by your savings account. Start today to help meet your financial goals tomorrow. You can money. Visit Marcus.com. National average data provided by Informa and accuracy cannot be guaranteed. 
Marcus Deposits products provided by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, member FDIC. And now back to the nine lies about work and our interview with author Ashley Goodall. So let's talk about Facebook for a second, because you use them as an example, as a culture that probably did what it intended to do. I think they created a company that was geared towards creativity, moving fast, moving fast and doing all that. How do you reconcile what has happened to Facebook? Like, were you surprised by what has happened? And B, what if you had to give a prescription pad to the leadership there? If you were on the board, what do you think you would do? Well, so it's a, it's a great example of the fact that, uh, firstly, there are no perfect people in the world and there are no perfect companies. So whenever we try and learn, we're going to be learning from definitionally imperfection. I think that's actually a really important point to make because we have a sort of habit of putting companies on a pedestal and saying everything here is great, we must replicate it. But if you look a little bit, you find out that there aren't perfect places because there aren't perfect people. So I think that there's a very interesting line into this, which is what do you learn from imperfect people because that's all you're ever going to learn from, if you like. To think about Facebook, look, Facebook is a fantastic example of how you cascade meaning in a company. And I think the obvious lesson from Facebook is that cascading meaning isn't the only thing that you need to get right. Mm -hmm. So we've chosen them as an, as an example of a meaning cascade. You would not, while we're writing a book on data security, have Facebook in the book. Now, I had an interesting recent experience with a friend of mine who uh, had a new boss come in as like the managing partner of the, the law firm. And he says to everybody... I want everyone to send me your best ideas about, like, what's going on here at this firm. And you can anonymize it. You can put your name on it. I don't care. What do you think of that kind of exercise? I think it's a great signal. So people in large organizations look up the whole time. That's how we're all sort of wired. What are the senior people doing? What can I read into that? Because I'm not desperately convinced by the thing they put on the mission statement slide. So how do I really figure out what's going on around here? So people look up and they watch what more senior folks do, which means that senior people are signaling the whole time by their actions what they're going to go towards, what they're going to go away from. And people read those signals very, very astutely and very, very quickly. Hmm. So the question for a senior leader is what signals are you sending are those careless signals or deliberate signals? What will be the read of your signals by the folks who are watching very, very carefully what you're doing? So a senior partner saying, um, send me feedback on where you think we should go is a signal that says I'm open. Mm -hmm. I haven't got all the answers in my head and you are part of the answer. Okay, that's a great signal. And here's the watch app. You do that once and then vanish off the radar for 364 days, people will forget the signal in about three days. Okay, So, so these things have half-lives. So I think it, that's it's fascinating. It's all about repetition. Because when she said to me, she goes, you know, so I wrote this, like, manifesto, you know, and it had to do with, you know, more female partners or that, like, we are losing great female talent, okay? And so she writes this whole thing and even has the partner say to her, like, total, like looks her in the eye, I totally get it, because she signed her name, She's already a partner. It's like a little bit safe, right? Signs her name, looks her in the eye. Yeah, nothing changes. There's such disappointment. 
because I had such high hopes. If you asked me for my opinion and then nothing changes and you don't give me that feedback of like, yeah, great idea. Just be patient. Now, what do you think about that? So, you know, people watch what you do. So now here's the action. I asked you what you thought and then I pretended that you didn't say anything. Okay, that's a pretty clear signal of I'm going through the motions and I got distracted or I didn't know what to do yet next or I really didn't care. Somewhere in that spectrum. Mm -hmm. So now that turns into a signal of I don't care. These are not the signals we want to be sending if we do care. How do you replicate a team experience? And now let me just talk about like, okay, here I am. I'm at CBS News. And so there's a radio experience or there's an online experience or there's a TV experience. How do I look at those team members, which have maybe different pressures? How do I replicate the team part of it across different silos of the company? Meaning, how do I make a team over here have the same experience as a team yeah, over here? Yeah, or look, the same look more like it. Like, if I find a great team, how can I translate that and bring it into other teams? Yeah, so the first thing um, is attention to strengths. That's actually the master lever of any team. And strengths is, by the way, misunderstood a little bit. Some people will say, well, you, you, we're saying pay attention to what I'm good at. And the answer is, mm You might be good at it, but the defining characteristic is that you're excited about it, Mm. energized by it. So the first thing is wherever you are on a team, whether you're a team leader or a team member, pay attention to what energizes people. One of the sad things about the way we seem to be wired as humans is that we are very articulate about our weaknesses. We're very articulate about what sucks and what drains us. And if you ask somebody, typically, if you say, tell me about something that drains you, you get a rant. They don't have to think. They can go, (laughs) there's this and this and this and then this other thing and then this other thing and then also this and this and this. And you go, okay, great. Now, what energizes you? And they go, well, it's the people, which is the lamest answer ever. If that's the (laughs) thing that you, if that's the lifeline for you, the thread through your life, through your world and you can come up with a word, that's not nearly good enough. So we've got to learn, each of us, and we can be helped by team leaders who understand how to do this, to be really specific about the things we are drawn to. We would do if nobody paid us to do. Those are the things, if you're going to do one thing right on a team, one thing, figure that out for everybody on the team. You figure it out by watching people, you figure it out by asking people, hey, you would, you just did that and that seemed effortless for you. What was going on in your head? Explain that to me. You point your curiosity at bright sparks. That's the trick. Now, I, when you came in, before we started the interview on tape, I was telling you that, you know, I don't have a team. It's just me and Mark. And you said, well, there's something unique about two-person teams. And I think a lot of people who are small business owners, they're in these teeny tiny organizations – What is unique about a smaller team, or even if you're in a small team within a larger organization, what's unique about that? So very often you find in in a two-person, a little dyad, if you like, you find a beautiful complementary set of strengths and energies. So you find that one person really runs towards this, and the other person wouldn't run to that if you poked him with a stick. And the other person is running towards something really different, and the first person wouldn't run to that if you poked them with a stick. In a little dyad, if you get the if you get the mixture right, and you know what the things are, again, it's all about you. You've got to sort of be 
pushing into this and super curious about it. From that comes predictability. From that comes trust. From that comes stability, if you like. And one of the really, really interesting things about the world of work, go back, go back to the picture that the team in Poland drew for me on the wall, which was a picture of chaos, mm -hmm. is that the thing that we yearn for as human beings is predictability. One of the questions in the eight is about confidence in the future. What gives you confidence in the future? It's a really interesting question. Predictability is part of that. And people are most predictable when they're doing what they would do anyway. Mm-hmm. Once you've understood what someone will do anyway, they become super predictable. And you can lean into that. You can rely on that. You can trust that. None of that set of ideas that work is about predictability, that we need a bit more predictability, that we're most predictable when we're playing to our strengths in the sense of energy, that energy leads to trust. None of that is talked about today. No one is pushing into these things, and I really think we need to. I'm wondering if you see some gender differences in the workplace around these types of issues. And what I'm specifically thinking about is there are times where uh, women will come to me and say, I don't feel like I can go do that thing, even if I'm passionate about what I'm doing here and go over there until I master that. Like there's almost like a the mastery hurdle and then I will go take that new job. What is that and do you how do you see that play out? There was one research finding, I can't remember where it was, that said uh, men will be promoted into a position based on someone's assessment of their potential, which, by the way, is another weird thing we talk about in the book, this whole idea of potential. But we will tend to put a man in a role because we think he'll be able to rise to the occasion. Uh, we will tend to put a woman in the role when she's proven that she can already do the job. So we go potential for men, experience for women. That was one finding. What does all of this mean? How do we redress the balance there? It's interesting because ultimately you don't know whether someone can do a new job. One of the most damaging ways that this shows up in the world of work is we make people team leaders who've been really good team members. Mm -hmm. And being a team leader is a very different job than being a team member. Completely different job. And it is a job, by the way. It's not like just being a slightly larger team member, if right. you like. This. I'm a great salesperson, yeah, so, so I'll be the so general so sales, sales manager, right? Sales team. Mm -hmm. No, running a team is a, is a completely different thing. One of the things that you find about uh, promoting people into roles is what you're looking for is not proven experience because you can't really ever see that if the roles are step up. What you're looking for is appetite. Mm -hmm. Appetite is the tell because appetite is how you learn to do anything new. It's being curious about how to do it well. Mm -hmm. So I think maybe one of the things that we need to get better at is not necessarily trying to say, does this person have perfect experience? I mean, obviously, some is useful. Right. Or does this person have whatever we think potential is, which isn't really a thing, but it's sort of... I mean, the, the insidious thing about potential is it allows us to justify choosing people who look like we do because we tend to think that the high potential people are like us. So I would say leave potential alone, some experience, and hire for appetite. So yeah, before I let you go, and I, I have kept you here very long, thank you for this, but you bring up in that remark the idea of diversity and inclusion, and you cover this in the book, and you talk about how diverse teams are better teams. It seems obvious. Why is that? The way to see it is to go to the opposite extreme. Imagine that everybody on a team is a clone. 
then all the team has is the spiky abilities of that one person cloned, and teams have got to do lots of things. The magic of teams is that they make weirdness useful because they can offset your weirdness against Mark's weirdness, and together you can do something that neither of you could do alone. To the extent that a team has to face off against a number of different things in the world, and no single human will have awesome abilities in all of those things, you have to take diversity and fuse it together for a team to be great. To go right back to the beginning of the conversation, when we talk about teams are the thing that matter the most, teams are the things that matter most for diversity as well. Mm. Because all of our differences as human beings, which are, by the way, a feature and not a bug, and pretty much the only feature we have, if we're going to express those most fully and put those to good use, the only way we can do it is in the company of other people with common cause, if you like. And you even talk about like, you know, sort of individuality is something that has to be really celebrated. And the idea of like, oh, be your authentic self is kind of the baloney part. But the real embracing of an individual is kind of the core. And if we're doing that at a team level, then we'll build more diverse organizations. Are you a believer in hard quotas? For example, that, you know what? I have a team of 10 and I want these 10 people to reflect, you know, about half women, half men and some black and some brown and some Asian and some blah, blah, blah. I mean, do you think that that is something should, that should be aspirational or should it be a real targeting? I, th- I think the real question is what works what works in in order to build a more diverse and more varied workplace. We are finding at Cisco that that actually you can have the diversity on a team as an outcome if you do two things in advance of that. You have a diverse panel of interviewers because we tend to lean into people, knowingly or not, that look a little bit like ourselves and you can give people all the unconscious bias training in the world, but that's still a thing. Mm -hmm. So make the interview panel diverse and make the slate of candidates diverse. That seems to work to move the numbers in a way that having quotas hasn't necessarily produced the outcomes that we've been looking for. I mean, it's a tricky topic. One doesn't want to say that quotas don't work because I think at the very least you say that quotas focus people on a thing that's important. It's actually another signaling mechanism in an organization. But I think what we're solving for is not every team looking like every other team in terms of its representativeness, but overall, how do we manage to see the specialness of each human, given that we as humans tend to look at the world slightly askant? Right. That's that's what you've got to struggle with. And so actually, if you make the people choosing and the people applying for jobs the greatest cross-section of humanity you can imagine, then we've found at least that better things tend to happen from that. I'm a simple gal. And I believe in both carrots and sticks. Uh, I interviewed a CEO who was saying to, telling me all this baloney about oh diversity, diversity. And I went and looked at his board, and it was you know hardly any women. You know, one person of color. I I kind of went behind his back and interviewed some senior people, and they're like, yeah, he's all talk. What if instead of saying these are your goals, we want diversity, they talk about diversity, that we said, okay, twenty five percent of your bonus will be based on your ability to have a diverse workforce underneath you. Do you think those people would change their behavior and hire differently? 
I know a fair amount about this at Cisco, mm-hmm. where half of the senior team, 50% of the senior team that reports to the CEO is female, which is a huge signal. And I look up at that, by the way, and I'm enormously proud mm-hmm. because I think that helps change the signals in the organization and helps people imagine a future that's different. And by the way, okay, at the moment it's 50% women, but everyone can see themselves in a leadership team that has said, we value diversity and we are going to be a diverse leadership team. That's a big important signal beyond even gender. In terms of setting financial goals for people, I would, I don't know, we've never done the experiment. We try in the book to be very evidence-based and not sort of hypothetical. But if you push me on it, because I know you're about to, I think the thing I'd say is that sometimes those things can help with compliance and sometimes that works in the short term and sometimes that leads to other things and sometimes it doesn't. And you're still facing the ultimate question of how do I find people who want to come and work here who look different from me which comes down to who, the, who are the people they meet when they come in the door. There's an interesting angle even of team there. Do you have a team interview somebody and say, we want you to join the team? Or is it a hiring manager saying, you'll meet the teammates later? Hmm. There's, there's something about the way that a company can send signals when it's bringing people in that are not just the signals of the Ohana floor, but the signals of this is the actual tribe of people you're joining would you feel at home here? That's interesting. All right. Uh, we started, I said, best career decision. You said go narrow. Love that. What's the worst? Let's call it your worst career decision or maybe even advice that someone gave you. So what's so funny is that um, uh, one of the things about me is I'm an optimist. I see and that. I'm, it's so I'm, pleasant and very unnatural for someone born in Birmingham. Well, there we go. Mm-hmm. So, you know. You fought against. I don't know. That's my, that's my little weird spike, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm an optimist and I spent my, my head spends most of its time living in the future and what could be and what might be and where should we go. So I'm probably not a good authority on mistakes I've made because they're in the past. But you said that we learn from mistakes, right? When in teams, we learn from failure, mistakes, all of those pieces. We learn something from mistakes, yes. We learn more from success. Really? Success isn't the end of the conversation. Success is where you start leaning in and interrogating what worked. What was I thinking? Why did it go that way? How can I do that again? Mm. Big success is the aggregation of small success. It is never the aggregation of a whole bunch of failure mitigated. Failure mitigated just gets you back to average. Mm. So if you want to thrive, you've got to interrogate your successes. That's not where you pat yourself on the back and move on to the next thing. That's where you stop and you go, Goodness me, what worked? A good team leader, by the way, does that for everybody on the team. That was a great presentation. What were you thinking? How did you prepare? What was going through your head? What was your sense of the audience? How did you pace the rhythm? Were you using the slides or not using the slides? How could you do that again? And then that set of habits and patterns that you just used in the presentation, could you transport that to a meeting where you're not standing in the front of the room? Could you transport that to when you write a written communication? Could you transport that to how you talk your team? That's actually how you make success. It's lean into what works and magnify it. I'm ending on that note. I love that optimism. I'm not uh, an optimist naturally. However, 
Ashley Goodall has co-written a book with some other guy. Who cares? Uh, and the book is called Nine Lies About Work, a free-thinking leader's guide to the real world. But listen, you don't have to be the leader. You can be the team member. It's really interesting. I got a lot out of it. So thank you so much for joining us today. Jill, thanks for having me. Thanks to Ashley Goodall. His book is Nine Lies About Work. If you've got a financial question, we'd love to hear from you. Just send us a note. Ask Jill at JillOnMoney.com. That's AskJill at JillOnMoney.com. We drop new episodes of the pod every Tuesday and Thursday, and you can download and subscribe to the show anywhere you get your podcasts. Apple, Google Play, Radio.com, Stitcher, wherever. Our music is composed by Joel Goodman. Mark Talercio is the expecting father-in-chief and executive producer. We are distributed by Cadence 13, and the show is presented by Marcus by Goldman Sachs. See you next week.